The revelation of Jesus Christ is an epistle. That is, it's a letter written by the Apostle John as he recorded seven visions which were given to him by Christ. And we've seen and and repeated this many times as we walk through this book. The purpose of this epistle, the purpose of this letter is to comfort and encourage Christians throughout the church age. Christians who would meet with all kinds of affliction and trials in their pilgrimage to their heavenly home. And every vision, every each of these seven visions, every one of them gives us God's perspective on the events of the church age, how He views it. Each one of them describes the certain end of this age. It will come to an end. And each one of them paints a little picture of the realities of the age to come. Now we have arrived at the very last scene in the Revelation. In the visionary world of the apocalypse, in these five verses, we are as far as we'll ever go on this side of eternity. In these five verses, we have the fullest, most detailed, most canonically advanced description of heaven in all of Scripture. If someone were to ask you, tell me what will heaven be like, you would point them here. If somebody asked, what makes heaven so heavenly? You'd say, well, if you take out your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, there you'll find it. It's all there. Every bit of it is right there in those five verses. Now, two Lord's Days ago, we considered the glory of the heavenly city back at the end of chapter 21. And we dealt there not so much with glory in its technical sense, but pretty much as a synonym for beauty. The question then was, what makes heaven so beautiful? What makes it so attractive? What makes it so appealing? Why is it that everybody wants to go to heaven? And in answering that question, we considered first the absolute glory of heaven, which gets a lot closer to that that technical theological concept of glory which is found in God Himself. God Himself is the absolute glory of heaven. What makes it so attractive? God is there. In these five verses, now we have that absolute glory, that that underived, independent, unqualified glory of heaven. That little snippet... You'd say point number one from the sermon two weeks ago. That little snippet is now brought out by itself and opened up alone. Again, we have here the fullest, most detailed, most advanced description of the heavenly glory in all of Scripture. Now when you hear that, you say, well, wait a second. I was paying attention when you read it, and I read along with you, and all I saw was a river and a tree... And a throne. And that doesn't seem very detailed. That doesn't seem very full. That doesn't seem very advanced at all. It seems like it's sort of cloaked in symbolic imagery, and that's true. Every bit of it, though, is right here. All of the glory of heaven is right there. In these five verses, we see the everlasting glory of heaven, which is the very glory of God. The glory of heaven is described here in terms of a river, a tree, and a throne. And that's where we're going to focus our attention. Now I understand full well 
If you've got various English translations, the punctuation is, is in different places, which can sometimes alter the, the meaning or the layout of the heavenly city. I don't plan to address any of that because our purpose in, in reading here, just like with the rest of the book, is not to be able to walk away and draw a picture or make a map of heaven. The goal at the end of this is not so that we can draw a really good, vivid picture of the beast or the dragon or Babylon. None of those are the point. And so... And here again, I don't think that's the point of the vision itself. I just want to focus on on the three furnishings of heaven which nobody argues about. There's a river, and there's a tree, and there's a throne. So first we see the river in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Notice first the title of this river. It is called the river of the water of life. Now we would expect any river to contain water. As a matter of fact, a river that does not contain water is not a river. A river that doesn't have water, we might call that a ditch or a gully, but we would not call it a river. The river is the water. If you don't have water, you don't have a river. The river is the water of life. It's the water that gives Life. It's a river flowing with life-giving water. Notice secondly, the source of this river. It's flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And we've seen the throne of God and of the Lamb many times. We've traced the movement of the Lamb that was slain through the book as He makes His way to the throne of God. And the picture has always been of the once crucified, risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ, God the Word, entering into the heavenly throne room to take his seat as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's the once humiliated Jesus who is God over all, ruler of the kings of the earth, disposer of all of the affairs of human history. Now when we see references like this anywhere in Scripture to God and the Lamb, or perhaps you might see God and the Son, or God and Christ, or God and the Lord Jesus, typically a distinction is being made between the persons of the Holy Trinity. While there is only one God, that one God has eternally existed in three distinct persons or subsistences. The Father... The Son, the Holy Spirit. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Yet there's not three gods. There's only one God. And so this throne is the throne of God and of the Lamb. Or we might would say more specifically the throne of the Father and the Son. If somebody asked, well, who's on this throne? God the Father or God the Son? We would say, yes, God Himself rules eternally through His Son, the Lord Jesus. One of my daughters asked last night, how can God be on the throne and the Lamb also be there? The answer is because the Lamb is God. And it's from this throne, the throne of God and of the Lamb, this point of exaltation and rule and power and authority, the throne of God and of the Lamb, it's from that throne that the river of the water of life, the river that gives life, finds its source. 
The river which gives life comes from God. Its spring is in God and the Lamb. He is Himself the fountain of eternal life. So now we would ask, what does this mean? When we see this river coming from this throne, I don't think it would be odd to suggest that we aren't to take this literally as if heaven is going to be a stream of water flowing from a royal seat. It's meant to be taken spiritually. It's It's symbolic. But what does it mean? Well, think first about the way that water is so needful to the life of our physical bodies. We are constituted, our our physical bodies are constituted primarily of water. Every organ of your body requires water. Every function of your body requires water. Every individual cell in your body requires water. So without water, you die. Without a, a continual flow of water in and water out, and the water coming out requires the water going in, it all requires water. Without that, we die. If you stop up the flow of water out, you'll die. If you don't have an inflow of water, you die. We have to have water. Water gives life to our bodies. And and so we take that physical reality and we see it used throughout the Bible as a way to convey uh, the, the life that is in the soul of a Christian, of a believer. Prior to coming to knowing Christ, we're we're called dead in trespasses and sins. When we come to know Christ, when we're born again, we're brought to life. We're given life. And water is used throughout the Scriptures as symbolic of, of what gives that life. Apart from, we could say, spiritual water, then the spiritual life of the Christian soul will cease. They'll die. We will die. There are signs that we can see when a person has been born again, just with any, like with any physical thing. If it's alive, you know it. You can see signs, growth, movement, activity. You know it. And so is true with a person who's been born again of the Spirit of God and brought to spiritual life. There are signs that you've been brought from life or to life from the dead. There are movements in your soul. There's growth in grace. There's a, a, a movement toward God and a, a growth in Christ-likeness. And all of that life requires a constant flow of spiritual water. So what is the spiritual water? Well, the New Testament, we see the pictures in the Old Testament, but Christ in the New Testament lays this out very clearly. In the New Testament, we regularly see God the Holy Spirit described in terms of this spiritual, life-giving water. In John 4.14, Jesus said to the woman of Samaria, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 7, 37 and 38, remember Christ, He stood up at the feast and He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then the Apostle John, the same John who wrote Revelation 22, 1-5, adds this comment... Now He said this about the Spirit, 
John 6.63, he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. And so we have from the mouth of Christ and the, the comment of the Apostle, every reason to see the river of life as a picture of the Holy Spirit, who is God Himself. It's God the Spirit giving life. Now, you might think, well, based on everything that we just read and what we know about the Spirit and salvation, would, or do we not already possess this life? And the answer is absolutely. That is correct. When a person's born again, as Christ said, they receive the Spirit of God. The Spirit Himself comes to dwell in them and becomes in them a spring of spiritual life which flows up and out and into eternity. This life-giving river is the ever-flowing, never-ceasing Spirit of God the Almighty. And it flows forever and ever from God. And it gives life to all of the saints for all of eternity in a fullness yet to be known by the saints. We see the Spirit working in the Old Testament, but we see that when Christ comes and He ascends and sends His Spirit, a greater and more full manifestation of the Spirit that... that makes what the Spirit was doing in the Old Testament look like He wasn't even working. And that's why there's so much debate. The, 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 the present work is so much more full. And here we have a fullness that will, that will dwarf what He's been doing for 2,000 years in His church. A fullness and a flow of the life of the Spirit of God in His saints. This is why in Ezekiel's vision of this same reality, he, he described the same thing. And Ezekiel saw the river coming from the temple and he, he says it was like a trickle. And then I went a little bit further and it got a little bit deeper. And then I went a little bit further and I was ankle deep and then I got a little bit further. I got to the point where I'm wading in the water. It just got deeper and deeper and deeper. Rivers on earth at some point either empty out into the ocean or they, they, they diverge into so many little streams and rivulets that the river itself becomes unidentifiable. It's like the river disappears. We, we don't have a concept of an eternal river. If you go and stand beside a, a big, swiftly flowing river and just try to contemplate how many millions of gallons of water are flowing by in, an, in, a, in just a few moments' time, and it never stops. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, for hundreds, maybe thousands of years, it never stops. And we think, how much water is there in this one river? And yet even that is not an eternal river. Here we have an eternal river flowing of, of, with life from God Himself. Already we have been given the Spirit who proceeds forth from the Father and the Son. He's the Spirit of God. He is the Spirit of the Father. He is the Spirit of Christ. And already, every sign of spiritual life that we experience in this life finds its source in the Holy Spirit of God. Every moment that you, you, you feel a movement in your soul toward God, a, a, a delight in God, just even if it's just a, a second, the Spirit gave life to that. Every hint of delight that you've felt in godly things that perhaps maybe before you never, you never felt, but all of a sudden, reading the Word of God, it, it, it stirred something. That was life from the Spirit of God. Every little bud of growth is some spiritual grace from the Holy Spirit. Every outworking of, of any fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, down the list, self-control, every time you, you recognize, I just, 
exercised a little bit of self-control, where in the past I would not have done that. That was life. That was a, a, a flowing of the Spirit of God in you, a fruit of the Spirit. We already have that. Your entire spiritual life as a child of God and all of the Spirit-empowered actings of mind and heart and will, all of it is a product of the life-giving Spirit of God. But of course we know that we also still retain the corruptions of our flesh. They're like little rocks and logs and limbs and things that, that, are, that are in this river that slow it up and the river has to go around it. The manifestations of spiritual life now for us. We know this to be true very often just like little, little spurts. Maybe an outburst. Maybe a 50-yard a, a dash that very quickly digresses into spiritual dullness. To the Hebrews, an early generation of Christians, it had to be said, you've become dull of hearing. Already? You're already dull of hearing, but that's how we are. We very quickly move that way in the here and now. How often is the life of God in the soul by His Holy Spirit choked out by your carnal appetites? How quickly can we go from from God stirring our hearts in love and prayer and praise to then immediately being overwhelmed with some fleeting issue, some fleeting concern of life? How easy is it for us to be inflamed with happiness as we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, His his sufferings, His death in our place, the fact that we've been reconciled to God through an act, not our own, but He has done it for us, and that lifts our spirits, and then we very quickly fall into the sin of of pride, or we walk out of the prayer place and we're we're so short with our spouse or with our children, or we're we're, uh, just unhappy with how breakfast turned out. We just expected it to be a little better. Just, Just like that. We just, the life is in us, but it's, it's, it's not all that it will be. It's as though in this life the spring has been tapped, the vein of spiritual life has been found, the water of life is flowing, the Spirit of God is providing every grace, every spiritual nutrient to our souls, and yet we are so fickle. The problem's not Him, the problem's us. We are so fickle in our receptivity and use of this mighty power within us. He's going to give all that we'll take. But it's we are the ones that that are so slow and so unwilling to take and to receive and to use and live. But here we see the glory of heaven. The river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The ever-flowing, never-ceasing, never-diminishing, always, only, ever, and forever increasing power of God Himself by His own Spirit, giving spiritual life to all of the saints, every one of them. Spiritual life from God. This is what Paul means when he says, So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. Sown is put in the ground. Our bodies put in the ground. Christians bury their dead. It is raised in glory. 
It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It doesn't say physical. It says natural. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a life became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Christ, is from heaven. It was the man of dust, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Notice what it says. We're going to be raised imperishable. Unable to perish. It, it can't perish. We, our, our bodies, he's talking about our bodies here, Our bodies will be raised in glory and power. And it's going to be a spiritual body. That doesn't mean it's not physical. It means the physical body will be raised, but it will have a life source that is the spirit of the risen Christ Himself. It is Christ, the last Adam, seated upon His royal throne, who will dispense life to the saints forever and ever and ever. A life that can't perish, can't stop, can't fade, can't slow down. Why? Because He is the life. We might wonder, how does God live forever? With no sustenance. He doesn't eat, He doesn't drink, He doesn't sleep, He doesn't rest. How does He do it? Well, the answer is because He is life itself. That life, the life of God, will flow forever uninhibited, unhindered, ever-deepening, ever-widening into a multitude that no man could number and sustain them for all of eternity, forever upholding the life of a host of saints without ever diminishing. Now doesn't that make us look strong and mighty? This is the answer. No, it doesn't. Because this is the glory of God. It's God who is the life. He's going to sustain His people forever. Then there's the tree. There's a river. Then there's the tree. Very very closely related. Verse 2, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Again, notice its title. It's the tree of life. This is the tree that gives life. Notice its use. It produces fruit, twelve kinds of fruit. Twelve representing what? The people of God. Nourishment for, food for the people of God. It yields its fruit each month. The Noahic covenant has ceased. There is no more sowing and reaping. There's no more more sowing and harvest. There's just eternal harvest. Month after month after month. Its leaves heal the nations, not as if in eternity they will will degrade and need to come back for healing, but that the leaves of this tree are the leaves that had already produced a forever and eternal healing of the nations. These were those leaves that healed the nations, we might say. In other words, again, this tree provides constant life and nourishment to the people of God, very much like the river, food and drink, or drink and food. Now the first reference to the The tree of life we know is in Genesis 2 and 3. 
In Genesis 2, it was a reminder of the promise of life. In Genesis 3, the way to the tree was cut off. Why? Lest they take and eat and live forever. The tree of life pointed to the promise of eternal life if Adam had successfully obeyed the commands of God. But he didn't, so he was cut off from that tree. Here, the tree comes back into the picture. But again, I don't think we're to take this as a literal tree that we'll have to go to every month and get our piece of fruit and go back to our, our labors. The tree, like the river, points to the life-giving power of God, especially through Jesus Christ. Revelation 2.7, we read, "...to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God." In other words, conquering, faithfulness unto death, immediately guarantees eating of the tree, taking of the fruit, eternal life, their eternal state with God, sealed forever. The tree of life not only symbolizes life, but eternal life. And even more specifically, eternal immutable, that is unchangeable, eternal life. A life that can never end. A life that can't be taken away. Life in us that is the very life of God Himself. We very often see Christ referring to Himself in terms of food and drink and saving faith is an eating and a drinking of Christ coming to Him and the soul living upon Him. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from vital union with Christ, we have no life. Apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. So it's true with the tree just like it is with the the river. Even now, we're already partakers of the life of Christ in a sense. We're already being nourished in our spiritual life by Christ. And in eternity, Christ will be our life forever. His personal standing and position in the heavenly city is the seal and guarantee of our standing and position. As long as He's glorified and and maintains His position, we will also be glorified and maintain our position with Him. they're, they're, They're one and the same. The life source is the same. The glory of heaven is that Jesus Christ gives and sustains the life of every soul eternally and immutably. The river, the tree, and then the throne. Of course, we know the throne is not really the focus, but the one seated on the throne. It is the throne of God and of the Lamb. Verse 3, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Now, it's interesting how this throne is described because first there are these references to what is absent. We've already seen some of it. No longer will there be anything accursed. Verse 5, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. As we've seen, all of sin, the effects of sin, the fruits of sin in the fall, it's all gone. Nothing accurses here. Night is gone. Again, Noahic covenant has been brought to an end. Common kingdom erased. All is holy. Night is gone. There's no sequence of days or nights or months or years. It is eternal, endless day. The everlasting Sabbath has been ushered in never to cease. But what is there? The throne is there. That is, God is there, ruling and reigning. And we also see the servants of God are there. His servants, it says. And what will we be doing? His servants will worship Him. He will reign upon His throne. We will worship Him. And they will reign forever 
and ever. We will join Christ in His everlasting dominion. Not as as joint kings or co-kings, but we will reign with Him. We will join Him in His eternal reign. As we've seen at the beginning of chapter 20, those who've conquered and have died have gone before us. They've already entered into this reign. The heavenly reign with Christ. For the Christian to die at the moment of death is to take our place with Christ and begin to reign with Him to join Him as He puts all of His enemies under His feet. This is the glory of heaven. The tree, or the river, the tree, the throne. The Spirit of life, Christ who is our life, and the everlasting reign of God. The glory of heaven is the glory of God. We could say, God Himself is the glory. Even now, our life is hid with Christ in God. Even now we have what Octavius Winslow calls the security of the divine life in the soul. It's, if you're a Christian, it's already been put there and it's safe. We have the earnest of our inheritance, but we, we have not the inheritance yet. And Winslow goes on to say of that divine life that we have now, quote, nothing can touch it. No power can destroy it. It is hid with Christ, the beloved Son of the Father, the delight, the glory, the richest and most precious treasure of Jehovah. Still more, it is hid with Christ in God. And I love this phrase. In the hand, in the heart, in the all-sufficiency, yea, in the eternity of God. Our divine life is already hidden in the very eternity of God. We have that now. We will see it then. We will live forever in the eternity of God Himself. In the life of God, we will have our living. This is the glory of heaven. That we will be forever with the Lord. Forever by no strength or exertion of our own. We will not be trying to be in heaven. We will not be trying to live eternally. No exertion of our own. Forever, by no eternity in ourselves, because we don't have eternity in and of ourselves. We will live forever with no life from our own spring. It's not going to be from us. Just as God is everlastingly self-sufficient, so we will live unto everlasting by that same everlasting, self-sufficient life of God He is the fountain. Now, you might say, it sounds like you're saying that it is the glory of God, or it is God's glory to be our eternal, effectual, everlasting, and all-sufficient Redeemer. That's correct. That's what I'm saying. This is the glory of God. To which you might respond, well, does that not mean 
that God's glory is dependent upon our being saved? The answer is no. No more than a spring of water is dependent upon the stream or the river that comes after it. In the same way, God's glory is not dependent upon its effects. It is shown in its effects. Remember, glory is a shining forth. It's a beauty coming out of an object. And so with God, His glory is the manifestation of His divine perfections in some outward way. Specifically, in His works of creation and providence, culminating in the eternal salvation of His people. That's His glory. It's His glory to create. It's His glory to sustain. It's His glory to save. It's His glory to keep and sustain this innumerable host for all of eternity by His own life and power. No exertion from you, please. I will sustain you forever and ever and ever. And that is God's glory. God's perfections, we could say this, overflow the banks of God Himself in the everlasting salvation of a people stamped with His image and sealed with His name forever. That is His glory. We often say or maybe have heard statements like this. God would be glorious whether He's saved or not. And I understand the sentiment. The sentiment behind that is God's glory is not dependent on saving sinners, which is true. But when we say that God would be glorious whether He's saved or not, we are describing a God who doesn't exist. That God God doesn't exist. He says, there is no God besides me. There is no rock besides me. What is a rock? A rock is a refuge, a shelter, protection, a Savior. There is no God who is not our God. And there is no God who is not our rock, our Savior. A God who does not create and sustain and save and then keep for all of eternity, that's no God. We don't want that God. We don't want the God who would be glorious whether He's saved or not. We want the God who's revealed Himself in Scripture as the one who saves. That's not the God we've been presented with in Revelation. While the mind of man cannot even begin to imagine the majesty and mystery of the salvation of God, the mind of God Himself cannot even imagine or reveal a God who does not save. That's who He is. It is His glory to save. And so we're not saying that saving and keeping and sustaining the eternal life of a redeemed multitude makes God glorious. We're saying because He's glorious, He's done this. And He will do it or He's not God and He's not glorious. Jonathan Edwards says, quote, The glory of God when spoken of as the supreme and ultimate end of all God's works, is the emanation, that's the outflow, the emanation and true external expression of God's internal glory and fullness. Now what would be the true external expression of God's internal glory and fullness? What would be a true external expression of God's mercy? 
What would be a true external expression of God's love? What would be a true external expression of God's power? His eternal power. What, what would it be? What would be an, an external expression of His immutability? We could go down the list, and I, I might just do it anyway. What would be the true outflow of these internal perfections? The, the internal perfections being the glory of God. What does it look like for that to come out? Well, the only answer is to be found in what God has actually done, is doing, and will do for all of eternity. So we see here the fullest, clearest, truest exhibition of the eternal power and Godhead of God. We, We could say the Godness of God. The Godness of God in Him coming out. What is it? It is to save a people through the blood of His own Son, keep them throughout their lives, and when they die, seal them unto eternity, and then maintain that life unto eternity. Millions and millions and millions of years as if it were a dot. And He just keeps them, maintaining them, never losing one. It's God's glory to be an eternal, effective everlasting and all-sufficient Redeemer. Listen to Isaiah 60. And note the relationship between what we've seen in, in the end of the Revelation and what was prophesied there. Isaiah 60, 19-21. The sun shall be no more, or shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. They will stop. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. I'm going to save you. I'm going to keep you to glorify myself. This is His glory. It's what He does. Isaiah 61.3, God's purpose is to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. This is His glory to save God is glorified in the bright shining of His glory and His glory shines most brightly into eternity as He Himself, as the river of life, as the tree of life, seated upon His throne, gives life to all who believe. So we see a river and a tree and a throne showing us that the glory of heaven is the glory of God. And God's glory is found in eternal redemption. An eternal flow of God's power, sustaining a multitude that no man can number forever and ever and ever without end. There will never not be an emanation out of God to His people. That will never stop. There will never not be a clear manifestation of God's glory in and to the objects of His saving grace and power. There will never be a time when the glory of God in saving sinners becomes a commonplace idea or remember what God did back then when He saved us. We might wonder, you know, once we're, we're glorified, we receive 
new glorified bodies that are imperishable. All of the effects of sin are removed. Uh, Death has been defeated, so we can't die. Will we not then, at that point, in a sense, somehow stand on our own apart from the moment-by-moment upkeep and management of God? And the answer is no. Not for eternity. We will not have life outside of God. We'll have life outside of everything else but God. He Himself will guarantee and ensure that we see and know and believe and understand He's our life. This is the everlasting glory of heaven. God will never not be glorified in His saints. Our salvation and God's saving of us is never ending. The glory of a king is in his people. And the glory of God is found in his saved people because all our life, all our existence, all our, even our praise to him will forever be from him as he gives life and we just return that life back to him in worship and praise. So do you know this God? Would you say, I've been brought from death to life? I, when you describe those little spurts and, and things, the little movements of the soul and those little desires, I've, I know that. Or would you say, I, I, I don't think I know that God? Well, let me remind you that it is the glory of God to save sinners. It's what He does. As a matter of fact, I'd be so bold to say that if you come to God... Through Christ, He can't not save you. It's contrary to His character. He can't not. Jesus said, all who come, I cast out none. Everyone who comes gets God. Everyone. He will save you. He will sanctify you. He will keep you. And He will glorify you. Because His glory is manifested in that work. That's what He does. So as we move to the Lord's table. I want us to just consider this work of salvation and how the salvation of God is an exhibition, an outworking of His glory, His intrinsic glory. If God is a God of love, then in working salvation, He must act with true affection and desire after those He saves. If He's a God of mercy, then He must act salvation toward poor and pitiable creatures. If He is most merciful, then He must find the most poor, the most pitiable of creatures. If He's a God of grace, then He must pour Himself out to those who do not deserve such a work. If He's omnipresent, then He must save people from every tribe and language and people and nation. If He's omnipotent, then He must overcome any and all obstacles which might hinder salvation. If He's independent, then He must act alone with no help from any creature. If He's eternal, then He must decree from eternity who and how He will save and then execute that plan unto eternity. If He's a God of justice, then He may by no means clear the guilty. If He's a God who truly loves His Son, then He must save in a way that draws the most attention to Christ. If he's long suffering, then he must save in a way that gladly endures great failings in the saints in order to bring them to glory. 
If He's immutable, then He must save us unto a state that is unchangeable as He Himself is unchangeable. If He's good, then He must bring the redeemed to see Him as the chief good with no competing loyalties. If He is ase, that is of Himself, then He must save only from His own self-sufficiency. If God is infinite in being, then He must save in a way that brings all the redeemed to live and move and have their being in and from Him alone. We could continue to go down the list. This is the God that the Bible reveals to us. This is who He is. And therefore, this is what He's done. In salvation, He manifests or shows us His glory. The Bible tells us that the glory of God shines in the face of Jesus Christ. And His name will be called Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. Yahweh saves. This is His glory shining, His salvation. In John 12, Jesus prays, Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. The crucifixion. How did the Father glorify Himself in the Son? He put Him on a cross. He emptied out His wrath upon that Son on that cross in order to save sinners. When we come to the Lord's table, that's what we're contemplating. The God of glory in all of His manifold perfections overflowing in that event of the cross where the the very glory of God was shining in the face of the man Christ Jesus crucified for sinners. And so as the elements are passed, let's give our attention and our meditation to that. The, The crucifixion of Christ as the very glory of God overflowing out in salvation.